Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey listeners, and welcome to another episode here at Feelin' Film. I'm Patch, and with me, back with a new family member, is my best friend and co-host Aaron. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> we took a hiatus so that he could finally see why having a dog is the absolute best, but this week we are resuming our love for dogs with Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs, or if you say it fast, appropriately enough, I love dogs, because we do. Before we get into that, Aaron, I believe you have a little treat for our listeners and for our Facebook group specifically. Well, not for our Facebook group specifically, but... Oh, okay. I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, and yes, it is a treat. So everybody, where you're at right now, sit down, roll over. Okay, good boys and girls. No, uh, so the treat you're talking about is a little bit of a promo here, so... Uh, got a chance to watch a film that just released. It's called Jungle Land, and it's available now uh, on demand and on digital. And it's also playing in some theaters across the country in places where theaters are still open. And we really were excited about this one because it's a boxing story. And you and I both really like sports drama and movies. And this one is very realistic feeling, it's very raw, and it's kind of got some bursts of exciting moments. It's got a great must-see ensemble cast that includes Charlie Hunnam, Jack O'Connell, and Jonathan Majors and Jessica Bardin. Uh, I would say it's probably right up there with one of Charlie Hunnam's best performances, maybe his best. I'm a big fan of The Lost City of Z. Jack O'Connell, I believe, is from Sing Street. Is that correct? I believe he's the brother in Sing Street. I think so, yeah. I think yeah, he is. and he's great in this as well. Um, Jonathan Majors is here getting a cup of coffee and basically doing his best Denzel Washington impression, and that's a compliment. And Jessica Barden uh, carries a lot of weight as well as a main character of the film. She's a girl, a young girl, and basically after a devastating loss in the ring, uh, brothers Lion and Stan, yes, one of them is named Lion, he's the boxer in the family, uh, they're in debt to a local crime boss, and they have to risk everything they've got to escort Jessica Barden's character, Sky across the country, and then take part in this bare-knuckle boxing tournament. Um, and they're in debt to a local crime boss along the way, so... There is a bit of a crime drama mixed in with this sports drama, and it made this a pretty unique watch, I would say. It's not quite like anything else you've seen. It's got a lot of Rocky in it, or a little bit of Rocky in it. It's got a little bit of Warrior in it, um, and I think that it's definitely one people should check out. It's directed by Max Winkler, who has written some majorly different things, like World War Z. It's a lot more personal. Uh, it's really all about its characters. It's not about its action. There are a couple a couple good fight scenes in this. Yes, you're going to want that, but it's about the interpersonal relationships between these two brothers, this young girl, what happens when they come together, and how they change over the course of essentially what is a road trip movie. It's rated R. It's from Paramount. And like I said, you can buy it or rent it in theaters right now. You can also win a copy because we've got four digital ones to give away. 
We're doing that via our social media channels. You can find a post about the giveaway on our Facebook page, in our Facebook group, and on our Twitter. All you got to do is follow the instructions. Usually it's just retweet and like or follow or comment. And sometime later this week, we will collect all of those and pull four winners, and we will contact you and give you your free digital code. Fantastic, Aaron. So you want to check that out as soon as you can, either through just your own direct download or through winning it from us. Well, before we get into our official spoilery territory, uh, I'm going to throw a curveball at Aaron. I want to get kind of a quick summary. How has life with your dog been before we get into our one more takeaways? It's funny you say that because I was actually going to work that into my one more takeaway, even if you didn't ask. I was going to say my, let... one, my one more takeaway is tired. Uh, <laughs> it has nothing to do with the movie. But uh, no, I'm tired. Uh, puppy life is incredible and incredibly draining. That is for sure. For example, I'm pub, uh, recording right now. This is our first episode in about a week, maybe a week and a half-ish, uh, in order for me to have the new puppy home and get used to him. And I had to call my daughter and ask her to come over and spend the night tonight and puppy sit while I podcast because I can't do something as simple as come into my room for an hour and talk to you and record it because if he needs to go to the bathroom, he needs to go to the bathroom. And I can't control when he's going to wake up and all of these different things. There, There's so much going on, man, but it is has been incredible and I'm sure I'll talk about it as we continue through the next several dog films that we're going to cover, but it's such a different feeling than being a cat owner and a cat lover. And I'm still that guy Uh, that, that hasn't changed, but it's a different bond that you get with a dog and it happened almost immediately And I just, I understand some things on a whole different level. This movie particular, it hit me way different than it did the first time I saw it, you know, like, and, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm so smitten with my little puppy Gimli. He's amazing and he's doing so well. He just needs to get a little bigger. He's a small little guy, but I'm very, very happy with the choice, man. It's been awesome. Good. That's always good news to hear. Will that be considered your one word takeaway is tired? Will we call that official? No, I'm going to keep going, but I, okay. I you know, I, it would be, but it's not for this movie. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, okay. For this movie, I'm going to go with Fable. And yes, I'm really just describing what the movie is being, you know, it uses animals to essentially convey some sort of moral tale. And I think that Wes Anderson and his style is such a perfect mix for this. I remember years ago watching Fantastic Mr. Fox, and I'm a big fan of stop motion animation in general. And so that film was really cool because you got to see stop motion animation in a very adult, dramatic kind of way. And it still got that whimsy to it and that humor that Wes Anderson's going to bring is a very dry, sarcastic wit that I absolutely adore, but it's different than anything else. It doesn't feel like a Tim Burton stop motion animation movie or, you know, anybody else's work. It doesn't feel like Laika uh, made for kids. Whereas kids could enjoy this, I think on the surface because of its tale about a boy trying to rescue his dog and save 
this colony of dogs, there's so much more going on beneath the surface of this movie from a socio-political type of angle that it's brilliant because your kids can watch it with you and ooh and ah and fall in love with the animated dogs. And you can watch it and, well, we can do the same, which I'm sure we do, but we also can be like, oh my gosh, wow, like, mm, we're going to talk about it, you know, here in a little bit, but like, hey, this kind of feels a lot different watching it right now than it did a couple years ago because of the situation that we're in with this pandemic from COVID-19. So it's a fable and it is one of the best ones I've ever watched. It is so perfectly animated and so detail oriented that it is a joy and just it's a splendor to watch this and kind of take in its moral lessons and its tale. And I don't think it ever gets to the point where it overwhelmingly becomes too preachy in a moral way that it takes away from just the sheer wonder of watching these animated dogs and this boy come together and go on an adventure. That's great, man. And and I echo all that. I co-sign that. I think my one word takeaway is insight. So this is the first time watch for me. I have not had a chance to watch a ton of Wes Anderson stuff. I know last year you went on a bender watching pretty much his whole filmography of things that you hadn't seen. And the I'm on the opposite end of that where I'm slowly getting into it either because of the podcast or just because I'm interested. So being able to watch this for the first time, I actually watched it on the couch with my dog laying next to me, and it was a treat. But the word that I pulled from this was insight. And I think for me, it wasn't just insight into the fable-esque type of thing that you were talking about where the story is telling something deeper. But really, I think Wes Anderson gets at the heart of what we ask as dog owners. What is my dog thinking? And I think he really does capture that kind of thinking. Love the exposition at the beginning where he mentions that these dogs speak Japanese, but we'll be translating that into English so that you'll be able to understand, essentially. And I felt like I was getting insight into the world of dogs in general, not just specifically this group of canines that had been banished to Trash Island, but of the fact that I could look a foot and a half next to me on my right, see a dog who is just staring at me and go, oh, that look probably means this based on what I'm watching right now. And it was kind of fun. I mean, obviously, I don't know what my dog is thinking, but I asked the question quite a bit. Like whenever I rub my dog's ears or when they listen to me when I say, let me rub your belly and they roll over and let me rub their belly. What are they thinking? Are they happy? I'm assuming they are. Are they being trust, you know, trusting? What's the deal? And this movie really does allow that exploration to kind of come to fruition visually and narratively because it's it's not a scientific movie, obviously, but I think it satisfies that curiosity in me as a dog owner to go, maybe they are thinking these things. Maybe they are smarter than I want to give them credit for. And it makes the movie a lot of fun to watch because it gives me a little bit of hope thinking, you know what? Dogs are a special kind of animal and we have embraced them as dog owners, which makes that all the more fun. So yeah, for me, it was insight. 
you just said it gives you a special kind of hope and i thought that was oh. kind of sweet yeah savvy that's that's true savvy yeah <laughs> hope and savvy are my dogs if you don't know already but anyway well, that leads us to spoilerific territory. If you have not seen the movie, please do yourself a favor, check it out, and come back and join us for our spoilerific part of our conversation. With that, you've been warned, and here we go. Aaron, you mentioned Wes Anderson's signature style. It is on full display here, and it's different in that he is using animation. And as you mentioned, the first time he used this was with Fantastic Mr. Fox, yet another movie I haven't seen. So this is the first time that I've actually seen Wes Anderson using stop, anim stop motion animation to tell his story. And I, I wanted to start the conversation by asking, what does that style, what does that approach, the stop animation, do in his ability to tell this kind of story? And was there anything specific that stood out to you that doesn't normally in some of his other movies. Well, no, I don't think that there's a lot that stands out that you don't see in his other movies. And I think that that's great because that's what makes it a Wes Anderson movie. He's one of the few directors in Hollywood right now that you can get, have a pretty great idea of what you're going to walk into when you step in that theater. You may not know the plot, but you're going to know the way that characters are going to behave, the way that characters are going to talk. You're going to understand that there's almost always going to be some commentary on class and other moral lessons that he's going to weave in there. You know it's going to be whimsical. You know it's going to be clever and a little bit fantastical in nature, even when it's grounded and realistic um, by default. So I think that that's awesome. And it's all present here in his animation. And what it makes him special is the fact that he can do that. He can literally make this movie and it feels exactly like a live action Wes Anderson movie feels. But it's got some of the best stop motion animation that you'll ever see, which is incredible, in my opinion. Um, he is a detail oriented director. He's known for his camera work and his angles that he likes to shoot. He's big on symmetry which I love myself, and so that's one of the reasons I'm drawn to him. And that detail shines through in this animation in a big way. I think for me, the biggest standout is just the emotion of the dogs. The dogs' facial animations are so expressive. And they're not overly expressive in the way that maybe a Disney dog might have big bulging eyes pop out or whatever, but there is always an understanding of the current emotional state of a given dog or psych psychological state of a given dog just by looking at them. You can see fear. You can see confusion. You can see curiosity. You can see love. You can see them processing <laughs> at times. Chief goes through this where you can see it in his head. You just see it on his face. He doesn't have to talk. You look at him and you realize that dog is thinking through right now how he wants to respond to a certain situation. And their excitement is ever present and it's all in their faces. And that is incredible, in my opinion. It made me really connect to them and drawn in. I mean, there are tears in the eyes of animals here that are just 
it's like mind-blowingly powerful to me in the way that the animation is done um and and so i think that the animals themselves are what makes this movie what it can be like the story is great and you need that but you need the visual connection to make it really special and make it stand out and he's able to do that and some of that detail man i just i just love things like one of my favorites i'll mention is the use of cotton to make smoke or clouds like that is just a common thing in stop motion animation and he does it great here because if you watch it real carefully or maybe if you pause you can tell that it's cotton but when you're watching it in real time it also just looks like a big puff of clouds and smoke and for me i actually enjoy that i enjoy looking kind of sort of trying to pull the you know cover away i do this with Leica animation too and think about the puppets and think about how this was made i get joy from that and seeing how well it actually is translated to this animated world so several things you said i wanted to go a little bit deeper on first of all i absolutely love the stop motion animation in this i think it's beautiful and adding anderson's color palette where he uses bright vivid colors and limited in that regard it's not a rainbow of colors but he uses colors and he uses them very specifically and distinctly the other thing that you mentioned another thing you mentioned was the facial expressions of the dogs this is where I think what he chose to tell his story makes it important. It's an important decision. If this were realistic, photorealistic, using actual dogs, you would get a different kind of tone because you could not control the facial expressions of the dog. You would use narration, like we do in The Art of Racing in the Rain, to tell the story and it's it creates a different kind of feel if you went full-on disney or pixar or a full a digital animation style you would get those things that over emoting the big eyes to show i'm excited and for something like all dogs go to heaven or 101 dalmatians you want that exaggeration because you're trying to really kind of overly emphasize a certain emotion when it comes to this particular style again i look back at my dogs and there's a mystery when you look at them that you kind of interpret what they're feeling so there's a routine that my pups have every day when they get up or when they start hearing me stir and my wife stir Hope, our younger dog, is in her kennel, and you hear her start kind of making noises. Savvy gets up on our bed, and she lays down, and then she will just look at us. And I don't know if you've seen this with your dog yet, but you'll see eyebrows just kind of go up and down, like she's looking left and right. And we're asking the question, what's the matter? Because she looks sad, but we know she's not sad. She's just waiting for us to get up, because the moment we say, do you want some breakfast, she will pop up and then run. And that tells Hope it's time to get up and it's time for breakfast. And then they will sit and be obedient and wait for their food. And their facial expression may not have changed, but we think that their emotion has changed because they're waiting for food. And what Anderson does here with these facial expressions is he doesn't get exaggerated. 
he merely looks at them. He puts the camera on them. And when you combine that with voiceover work and the way they're created, I don't want to call them drawn, but the way in which they're created and how they line up with actors like Brian Cranston or Edward Norton or any of these guys, it adds to the believability of him wanting to capture a balance of realism. I put the emphasis on the wrong word, realism <laughs> and, and fantasy. And that goes into what you were talking about with regard to looking at the clouds. Yes, the clouds are cotton. And we love that because we're buying into the fact that we can hear what dogs are thinking. Not because they're thinking, but we can hear what they're saying because they're talking. They're barking, but as Anderson says in the beginning, they're being translated for us. And this is an interesting thing because you watch this. If this were a full-on CG photorealistic type of animation, we'd be looking for flaws. It's the criticism that we have when we talk about bad CGI. Like when we talk about a superhero movie, we're like, man, did you see the CG? It was terrible. Why was it terrible? Because it didn't look real. <laughs> it didn't. I mean, the irony of that, a superhero movie about aliens coming from another planet didn't look, quote, real. When you use styles like this or what Leica Studios does, the less realistic you get, the more forgiving your audience is. And stop motion animation is one of those things where it blends that idea of it can look realistic. You can represent a dog as a dog, not as something cartoonish or unrealistic, but you use that material. You use real materials like, I think it was sheepskin or sheep, sheep. There's some kind of fur or whatever that was used for the fur of the dogs. I can't remember, but you use real materials. You use real materials to be able to create these characters and what you find is an experience where you're naturally forgiving the fact that a cloud is cotton <laughs> because the style it really it invites that fantasy world and so what i'm getting at is that i think using stop motion animation as opposed to like full-on animation gives our audience gives me that ability to enjoy not only something great to look at but also creates that balance of both fantasy and realism. I also love Aaron, the fact that he incorporates more than just stop motion. He uses 2d illustration to represent, um, you know, television commercials or whatever. And he shows a little bit of anime here and there. He's just kind of paying tribute to Kurosawa in a lot of ways. And I think if he did this with only one particular way, one particular style, I don't know that it would be nearly as effective, particularly in a film that is not American by nature. I mean, that's risky when you, you're an American filmmaker and you're like, let's tell this story in a part of the world that's not familiar to my audience. And to me, I think that was a big reward from that risk because I think it looked more like a tribute and less like a kind of an accurate type of portrayal. Yeah. There's a lot that people said when this came out about the usage of Japanese culture and the way in which it is integrated into this particular story and the socio-political message that's being told. I'm glad that we have a podcast that focuses on how we feel and we don't have to get into all that junk, to be honest with you, because 
I love the movie and I don't want to think about all that, you know, and I don't want to get into that conflict and that fact that some people had issues with it and that's fine. And, and I'm not going to take that away from them, but I don't. And I agree with you completely. In fact, one of the other animated things I would point out um, that really stands out to me, the sushi making scene is probably one of my favorite animated scenes ever in any movie. Love it. I just think it is it. absolute. Again, we go back to the detail, right? And one thing I will point out is particularly with the sushi making scene and then some of the other cultural usage of culture, cultural concepts and things in this film is that Anderson made very intentional effort to bring on a Japanese writer to work on this story with him. So he was trying to be respectful of the culture. So no matter what you may have taken away from it, and I know people, like I said, may have different feelings on that. The man made an attempt and definitely was going into this with the best of intentions. And I think that that's important. So I, I, re I just remember writing that in my review when I did some research and found that out because I was like, I wonder, you know, is this just a white guy playing around in Japan for fun as in a sci-fi setting? But it's not that that was never his intention. Yeah, it, it, it played as a tribute and not a parody, which I think is important to know. Yeah, the Kurosawa stuff you're talking about, dude, the when they're beginning on their journey and they're like looking for the parts of the plane to put it back together and their dogs are trying to help atari get off the island this this is the first time it happens and then it happens again several times after that there are some musical cues that are seriously like straight out of seven samurai and and it's an immediate reference point for anyone who's seen that film or seen kurosawa's work and i just i love that because it fit very well thematically with what's going on with the way that the characters are coming together to solve this problem and to take care of each other and when they're kind of on the outside, uh, as it were, and they're outcasts. And, and I just, I just think that it plays very well. That and the, the, the drum line is phenomenal. I love the drums and the whistles. The, the score by Alexander Desplat is just fantastic. It was one of my favorites of the year. It's really, really good. Uh, it was definitely a standout when I watched it. You know, the last couple of weeks in these episodes, and I think we're going to continue to ask this question with all of our movies because this is just part of being a dog owner about the important relationship between a dog and his master. Uh, we talked about that in our Frank and Weenie episode. We hit on it pretty significantly in the art of racing in the rain. And I really think this is not an exception to that. I mean, at the heart of this movie, the whole plot is driven by Atari going to this Island to rescue his dog. And I wanted to know from you, what ways do you think Anderson succeeded at showing this throughout the story, not just with Atari, but in other ways throughout the, the whole narrative? Well, I mean, obviously it's played out through Atari in the main story. I mean, he's going to save his dog. It's really point blank and, and to the point and <laughs> it's straightforward, you know, and I like that Tracy actually has a crush on him because of how much he loves his dog. It reminds me of when I was online dating at times and I would perk up or give special priority to a profile that listed itself as being like a cat lover or a cat owner. 
because that was a trait that I wanted in a significant other. And so the film gets that right and understands that about human connection because Tracy, who also is found to have a dog on the island, Nutmeg, is looking for or, you know, attracted to someone that feels the same way about Pet as she does. And it also tells her something about his character, the fact that he's going to save his dog and save all of the dogs and as well as his ingenuity, of course, and cleverness in how he does that. His dedication is what's more important. And so I like that. And I think that there is a really great conversation that captures a lot of the essence of human and dog relationships. There's one that's probably the strongest, but we're not going to talk about it yet. (laughs) So we're going to save that for later. But the other one that really stuck out to me is this almost bittersweet conversation. This movie's got some darkness to it at times, but like a bittersweet conversation between the dogs. And they're talking about their favorite meals and birthday foods. And Chief brings up the fact that he doesn't have those kind of memories because he's a stray. And he didn't have a birthday meal that was always given to him every year that he could remember all the dogs are, you know, thinking back. And I, and it's nice because these dogs all are coming from different backgrounds. So, you know, you've got the mascot dog for the Japanese baseball team. You've got the commercial starring show dog, show dog, or, you know, star dog. And then you also have a show dog later. Um, and so they all come from different backgrounds. There's just a family pet dog. And then you got your stray And the different kinds of meals that they talk about are what you would kind of expect. So, like, the dog that's a superstar is going to have a more ritzy, fancy, expensive birthday meal, right? Whereas, like, you and I are, maybe we do cook our dog a steak on its birthday. You know, that's something you and I could do for a relatively cheap price. And I thought that it captured that well. And it goes on to have Chief flashing back and telling this story about this one time that he did get adopted in the midst of all of these times that he got captured by the pound and he was digging his way out to tunnel out of the pound uh, Andy Dufresne style over and over but this one time he gets adopted and this young boy and they take him home and he's playing and he the boy tries to pet him and he bites him too hard and this also plays into the whole like I bite thing from the very beginning of the film where chief is made to be struggling with this idea of his own nature his innate desire to bite things and how humans react to that and how he then has to process and react back and what it means about him as a almost as a person but him as a dog him as a you know soul and he's telling this story about how he bites the kid too hard and it leaves blood everywhere and he did it because he felt scared by the boy and it totally changed my mind, Patrick. Cause like, you know, I have a puppy and he's 10 and a half weeks, 10 weeks now. He's very nippy. Like he's going to be like this for a while and he doesn't know what he's doing. He, he's going to bite because everything to him is his mouth. He's exploring with his mouth. Like he's going to eat everything. He's going to taste everything. You know, he's going to bite everything. And he's going to do it when he's scared and he's going to do it when he's playing and when he's loving, he's going to do it at all different times. And so Chief bites this boy and he's simultaneously wrestling with that inner turmoil that I think 
we can all relate to because our dogs have bitten us at times and we've reacted to it in a way. It's maybe sometimes in ways that we're not proud of and maybe we've gotten better. I don't know, but that's what this is talking about. And it wraps up by him then getting to say that was the best meal because the grandmother, an older adult who's been through this and understands the dog probably wasn't trying to bite you because he wanted to hurt you. And that night she still brings him a bowl of chili. And that's what he remembers as being his favorite food. And the next day he escapes and he goes back to being a street dog. He's telling the story. So I thought that that whole little section, that scene really nailed like what it is to be a dog owner, what it means to have your, what it means for your dog to be owned and to love you back. And kind of that give and take of, I care about this animal so much that I want to give it a meal that's special every year for its birthday, even though it's not a human. And the dog showing us that pets may remember that and, and he knows that and he appreciates it. So that, that was it for me. That's great. And I, I, I wouldn't disagree with you at all on that. I think that in addition to it, there's this idea that these dogs in connection with their owners is like a symbiosis that happens where they have purpose, but they're also valued for the fact that they are that they are a dog. They're not a cat. They're not a bird. They're not a human being. They have a different kind of relationship with their owners. And those four or five individual dogs, chief Rex, King, Duke, boss, really Rex, King, Duke and boss, which by the way, are all, named uh, like different kinds of leaders, which I think is pretty fantastic. And you watch them and how they describe themselves. They describe themselves in relationship to their value of their owners, the show dog, the mascot. And when you, when you see that there's a sense of pride to know that in contrast to chief, which makes your story that you brought up so much more impactful they had a reason to be who they were because before uh, Duke met his owner, he was just a dog and his owner made him who he was. Didn't necessarily define who he was, but he takes pride in that. And the output of that is this different type of meal. Those descriptions, Aaron, don't just say, something about the class system or where you come from they also reflect the kind of value these dogs were to their owners and so to a show dog they're going to get something probably pretty fancy pants but to a dog who is just man's best friend or a kid's they're probably going to get an extra you know bone in their stocking for christmas or something like that i mean it's how i am with with our dogs they don't have their own stockings necessarily, but I give them an extra you know, kneecap or some kind of rawhide chew or something to nibble on. Do they know any better or worse? They don't really care as long as they get the bone, but they don't expect it either. And that's where I think the wonder of having a dog is, is that you interact with them from a human perspective, not as if they're humans but with the insight that you can talk to them that way. And it's different than having a cat or a bird or a ferret or just, you know, whatever, 
because of what you mentioned earlier, going back to the fact that their facial expressions don't say much. They say enough to get you to kind of feel a certain way. And when we see the relationship that Atari has with his dog, and we see the relationship that um, that Tracy has with hers, it fuels these bigger themes that are taking place in that it's not just about saving your pet, saving your dog. It's about the fact that dogs may not be the problem. Maybe they're now the scapegoat for something else that's going on. And that's when we get into kind of the heart of what Isle of Dogs is really doing. There are a lot of different themes that Wes Anderson is playing with. You kind of hinted at that earlier. We won't go into too much detail about it, but there were there were a handful of things that that stood out: political corruption, misinformation, scapegoating a group, corporate greed, and power. Did any of those stand out to you? And and really, I guess I wonder: does today's climate kind of speak to any of those, or do they speak to today's climate in any way? They do. I wanted to go back though, because the other time that this really comes up that stuck out for me is when we are flashing back to Atari meeting spots and it's after Atari's parents have been killed in this train crash and he's in the hospital and he's all messed up and Mayor Kobayashi has adopted him and brought in the dog, right? And the butler, the butler actually, I forgot his name is Mr. Dojo or something, but he brings in this dog and he uses this translator to talk to the dog at the time. And the dog wants, he goes and he wants to pet the dog, right? And he gets yelled at and abused for it by the butler guy. He even says, he says, you are guard doggo, not a petto. And I thought that that was, again, perfect Wes Anderson moment where it's funny to hear guard doggo and not a petto, but also it's really hammering home like this idea that a dog is assigned a role by its human. And based on that, we are expecting the dog to act a certain way or do a certain thing and not do other things. And that interpersonal relationship of how dogs are supposed to work for us is really intriguing to me. And I, and I don't know if, Anderson is in particularly trying to comment on this or not, but I know that it definitely makes me feel a certain way about the idea of a guard dog that is meant for no other, that you can't love because you can't make it soft. You know, I kind of have a problem with that, <laughs> to be honest. And that's different than the way that Spots became a guard dog for Atari as a caring, loving animal companion who wants to protect his owner, but not at the cost of not actually showing affection to his owner or being able to receive it. So this is where I think Anderson is really clever, because if you look at the design of the dogs, none of them look malicious, okay? At least not initially. And there is this narrative that's told that certain dogs in particular in in our city certain types of dogs are not allowed in dog parks partly because of their nature pit bulls 
are one of those. Doesn't mean you can't own one. They're just not allowed in dog parks because they have a vicious streak in them. Well, our younger dog is part healer and part pit bull. And you can tell when the pit comes out when she gets really angry because she starts showing her teeth. And you can see her face just become kind of pit bullish. And I remember early on when we were trying to figure out what she was, when we found out that she was part pit bull, Christian was like, oh, gosh, I hope she doesn't have a mean face. Because there is something intimidating. And she's black. And she's 70 pounds. So there's not a lot that she has going for her in terms of the initial, like, is she safe? Is she dangerous? And it's kind of unfair. Because just like Dobermans, Pitbulls, whoever, there are dogs that might have mean streaks in them. But just like these dogs, because uh, in the movie, are put in a position where they become mean because they have to survive. They have to eat their own at least once. There's that great scene near the beginning when we get introduced with the dogs on the island. And there's this like trash and they're going to fight these other dogs for the right to eat that trash on the surface you're like oh good dogs bad dogs nope in actuality they're all the same they all want the same thing some are just more aggressive than others because it's survival of the fittest at that point and you can't fault them for that and in the same way as dog owners dogs are made to be and trained to be a certain thing it's why training is important as a puppy because you don't want 70 pound dogs as playful as they might seem as domesticated as they might seem as they don't know what they're doing you don't want them jumping on 10 year old boys because it would freak them out especially when they have huge paws with nails that have not been clipped this has happened before and it traumatizes and you don't want that because it's not the dog's fault it's your fault to an extent because you're not training them properly there's a responsibility that goes into that. And that's part of the relationship that I think is sort of hinted at with Spots and his relationship with his owner. He doesn't look mean at all, but he was born, not born, but he was brought in to do a certain job. And that job is being fulfilled and you know eventually passed on. Spots sees that job as important, but as you said, not at the expense of hurting other people. And I think Anderson, in a sense, is trying to call attention to that because I would think he's a dog owner. Maybe he's not. But if he is, I would think that he knows that having a dog is as much about affection as it is about protection. I think I talked about this a couple of weeks ago that one of our dogs will bark at the window if they if she sees something suspicious. And then Hope, our younger one, will get on the ottoman and sit between us and the quote unquote danger. I love that. I don't know what would happen, but I love the fact that she feels the need to protect. We didn't train that in her. She just knows because of the symbiotic relationship that we have. And Isle of Dogs really does kind of paint that picture in a way, whether it's done by force or done naturally, that protective ideology from a dog comes out in the relationships that they have with uh, characters like Atari. 
Well, as I mentioned before, Anderson was very effective at using his story and characters to talk about some of these bigger ideas. And, uh, you know, I listed some of them, political corruption, misinformation. What are some of those that, that stood out to you, Aaron, especially in light of this crazy year that we've had with a pandemic and an election that doesn't seem to end and all the other kind of craziness that's going on? Well, basically just the concept that this is a conspiracy and we have had kind of a run on conspiracy theories lately, be it somewhat because of presidential elections and not just the most current one, but really going back, I'm sure further back, but back to when Donald Trump was elected and this idea that Russia somehow was helping him to get elected. And so it's been a big issue and things have just blown up ever since then in a big way. And then we have the pandemic now and we have this new election, which he is claiming is fraudulent and all of these things bleeding into this idea that a government is controlling the way that they want things to be. And here is a story where literally he goes through a section, the mayor does, where he's thanking all of his political and corporate, not rivals, but peers who helped him successfully get to where they are right now in eradicating the dogs. And he talks to Big Pharma and he says, you know, good job on introducing contagious fleas and ticks to spread the snout fever. He talks to this municipal task force, right? The military arm, police arm, says, thanks for de deporting over 750,000 caged dogs to nearly to a nearly uninhabitable refuge center. Kobayashi Robotics, he's got the scientific arm in there. They developed a replacement dog, uh, which was also doubling as a weapon, which robots usually do in stories. And then the clenched fist gang, who eliminated pro-dog opposition through the use of bribery, extortion, intimidation, and violent force. <laughs> this is like a militia, essentially. This is like Antifa or something like, <laughs> really, that we're talking about here and he talks about how he says through brainwashing fear-mongering and wheel grease greasing we have ended the canine quote-unquote crisis i mean this is like where the socio-political thing is like super strong here and it is by no means questionable we have dogs being sent to essentially the equivalent of like internment camps <laughs> which is where people had some issues with this movie because of how Americans treated Japanese people during uh, the after effects of the world wars. And so you've got that parallel, but you've, you've really got just this idea here that you have a person, Mayor Kobayashi, who for whatever reason, and, and I don't think the story reasons matter so much, but what, what Wes Anderson's getting at is for whatever reason, this person hates a thing. And this story, because of how it's being told, the fable it's all about cats versus dog, that age-old battle that we like to have at our office water cooler and we argue about online and we jokingly debate, oh, cats are better, dogs are better, you know? And it's taken to a conclusion here that if you imagine and you think about the real-world implications of how people treat human beings this way and you look at it, 
and you realize this stuff may actually happen, it's pretty hard to swallow at times. And I think when I watched it the first time, Patrick, when it came out, right, back in like 2018, it was so much more, you know, it's set 20 years in the future. It feels much more like a sci-fi fantasy world in a dystopian or utopian story, like a Big Brother kind of thing, where we've seen these movies before. It's like, oh, in the future, there's going to be conspiracies, and they're all going to be watching you. And then now we go through this, and we start questioning, are we there? Are we, like, in the future? Because we feel like maybe some of this stuff is happening right now. So it's a little eerie to watch, especially with the pandemic angle. And the, you know, many, many people out there who question the actual reality of COVID-19 and what it does to people and how is it actually killing people by uh, by itself. And that you think about that in comparison to the way that the snout flu is put forth and let loose on dogs to make them sick. And then they literally are spreading lies and saying it's worse than it is. And that it's dangerous to people when it's not in order to then exercise what they want, which is getting the dogs out of the way. It's creepy, man. It is creepy. And it is really kind of hard to like watch that. If it, if it was a movie that was just dealing with these concepts that was like straightforward and a drama or some sort of thriller, I don't know that I would want to watch it right now, but because it's whimsical and it's cute dogs, I'm able to take it in. Well, the conspiracy theorists would probably tell you that this is exactly what the deep state wants you to do. They want you to kind of soak this up and say, oh, it's just about dogs. It can't be real when in actuality it is. And I, I say that sort of tongue in cheek, but in a world of over information that we get from so many different sources where no one can be trusted because everybody's lying or everybody's out for their own agenda, man, a movie like this can hit hard because you look at some of the ways in which the scenes are set up, particularly on the Japanese city side, where you have this group of people who are blindly following the mayor because he's powerful. And even going beyond that to <laughs> the way in which Anderson puts language on the screen. So he'll put it in English, he'll put it in Japanese, but I don't know if what's in Japanese is really what's being said. You see an interpreter telling what the mayor is actually saying, or is she? And you you ask all these questions, and two years ago, I would not be asking those questions. I would say, hey, Wes Anderson's really, he's having a lot of fun with language here, and he is. But in the day and age where you get only clips of videos that are cropped so it, tell, it tells one particular story as opposed to the whole thing. These people on in the city are getting one narrative. Dogs are bad. They've got the flu when they don't know that this dog flu has actually been manufactured. And you're right. In this day and age, when we look at something like COVID-19 that is too crazy to be natural – it must be man-made because this would never happen to the United States. Why is every other country not suffering as much as we are? Those types of questions, which have some legitimacy to them, 
are really fueled by the ideas that are present in a movie like this, which is we don't know all the answers. And so we have to fill in the gaps. And sometimes those gaps are filled in by leaders who speak really, really loudly, even though those gaps are filled with a lot of misinformation and half-truths. And this is what I think Mayor Kobayashi is kind of encapsulating. I'm going to give you the story that you need to know so that we can maintain a sense of control over here. And I'm glad, like you, that a movie like this exists in its form because I could take this way too far and say, wow, this is exactly what we're experiencing right now. When in actuality, no, this is a story coming from one or two people's minds based on what we know about the world. And obviously, this is not speaking of the world of 2020 because it was not here in 2020. But at the same time, I think it does serve a purpose in reminding us that all the information that we have around us, we have to take with more discernment and we have to be able to know when we can speak up and say, this isn't true. This doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Let's question it. And I think that's where you have characters like like Tracy who stand out. You know, She's the militant, hey, we're going to fight for this. But I think she also represents the we want more truth and we want to find out what it is that's actually the real deal and get these dogs back because it's not their fault. So I think she represents the other side of that maybe to an extreme, but I think that's appropriate for a movie like this. Yeah, and you also have the other part of that would be the essentially the assassination of the science professor who had proof that there was a vaccine ready to be I mean it it's messed up. Like there's a vaccine ready to be distributed that works, but they're trying to cover it up and like put it down so that people don't know that because they don't want the dogs to actually be cured. And so this guy gets like assassinated by way of this poisoned, gorgeously animated sushi. And so Tracy exposes that. And you're just like mind being blown because of what we're going through right now. Again, it's so much of this that is in this movie. It's not that it hasn't been in other movies before when we've dealt with like pandemics and stuff. It's just that it's always been sci-fi to us. It's never actually been something that we've experienced on this side of the world in the way that we are going through now. And it's terrifying. Um, and it definitely makes you question things. And it's it's subtly woven in there uh, in a way that is just, again, it's really brilliant to make it that serious for adults, but yet that whimsical way in which most you know older kids can just watch this right through. And most of that's going to sail over their head. They're just going to see it as a story and mm-hmm. enjoy it for the more base dog and human relationships. Right. Well, speaking of enjoyment, I think one of the things that stood out to me, as does a lot in Wes Anderson's movies, is this all-star cast that he brings together. As I mentioned, you got Ed Norton, you've got Jeff Goldblum, Bill Murray, of course, is you know Wes Anderson's muse. I think he's in almost all of his movies. The lovely Scarlett Johansson, even Greta Gerwig. I mean, this is crazy. Greta Gerwig, <laughs> who we know is a director, a great director, has a voice part in this as, as Tracy. Did any of the dogs in particular, any of these leaders uh, between Norton, Goldblum, and Murray, 
did any of them stand out to you or connect with you in any in, in a way that um that you found just amusing or in particular not outside of well i guess a couple i you know they're all incredible and, and that's the bottom line is it's sort of hard to for me to find one to single out because i think even in the roles that are so minor they're perfectly attuned to their dog's personality they're perfectly cast if you will voice cast and you're right once you've worked with wes anderson he's one of those directors like christopher nolan the people just keep coming back and coming back and they're like put me in your movie i don't care if i'm an a-list star just put me in your movie like i'll be anything and you see that here like you're mentioning and and i think that that says a lot about the director and how people enjoy working with him and the stories that he enjoys telling. And they enjoy that too. Uh, Cranston as chief is perfect. I mean, he's the main guy, he's the main role and he is awesome. 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 It's, I haven't seen all the breaking bad. Go ahead and shame me all you want people out there listening. I know Patrick can't cause he hasn't watched it either, but this is my favorite, like Brian Cranston role. I just think his voice performance is exceptional in this as chief. He has to go through emotional swings and a period of discovery. And again, like I said earlier, like his whole through line dealing with the whole I bite from moment one to the end of the film, the time he says it at the end, I think is exceptional. And he does it with such a subtle voice performance. It's not over the top. It's not flashy. It's not super expressive, but it is expressive enough that you know what's happening along with the animation. So I think he's great. Edward Norton as Rex stands out because it's Edward Norton and his voice is just so daggum recognizable to me. And he has a lot of say, but he, I like him, Patrick, because he's the logical dog. He's always explaining things in very realistic terms. He's, you know, he's trying to bring a sense of realism to the group. And I like his performance, but the rest of them, they all fit perfectly. Uh, Scarlett Johansson, can make an AI computer seem sexy and she can make a dog seem sexy. I mean, she, she just can do whatever she wants. Like the attractiveness oozes out of her in such a way that is astonishing to me, honestly. And so I really liked her performance as nutmeg, the dog, particularly in the scenes where she and Cranston and that character chief and nutmeg are flirting back and forth, uh, like when they're talking about puppies at the end and the, the transitions in the dialogue between the two, I think they play perfectly together when she starts talking about like, imagine me, you know, upside down with fiery bowling pins on my nose or whatever, you know, and it's just, I mean, it's awesome. They carry the dry wit and clever style of his dialogue just brilliantly for me. So I, those are the ones that stuck out the most to me. But again, I think that they all are fantastic. Yeah. I, I think that nutmeg and chief's character relationship is kind of an updated version of lady in the tramp for me. And I think it's aptly done that way. I really enjoyed Goldblum and Murray's performance. I, I think you're exactly right. The dogs were styled to the character or to the actors and because all four of these guys, well, I say all four, Cranston is more subdued, but Norton, Goldblum, and Murray, they all have distinct voices 
that you recognize that Anderson gives them dialogue that amplifies those. And I hear Bill Murray as this kind of laid back, like, hey, I'm just here for the for the treats kind of mentality. And then you've got Goldblum, who kind of channels his inner Jurassic Park kind of persona and is a little bit slightly paranoid, but not really. And those two, I think, become kind of the comic relief in that group of dogs. I think it's fantastic watching them go by on that little tram and they're arguing about who the leader is. And then when when Chief and Atari end up getting detached, they're like, what do we do? What's going on? And then they go into the incinerator. I kid you not, Aaron. I was like, is is this how they die? I mean, are, are they going to die? <laughs> the tone of the movie makes you think it's possible. That's what's that, so good. Or And then, and then nothing's going to come of that. It's like, okay, well, that was the end of those dogs. So let's just move on. <laughs> oh, like gosh. what? No, I, I was I was like, no. I was enjoying this, and now you took it away, Wes. What are you doing, you jerk? Fortunately for us, that was not the case. But, yeah, I agree. I think that that trio of dogs coupled with with Cranston and Johansson doing their thing just really round out a, a great canine posse of sorts. Yeah, that moment, like you said, and Rex leading the group essentially in lieu yeah. of Chief is one of the reasons Edward Norton stood out for me. But that moment where he's like, all in favor of replacing Chief as leader of the group, you know, say aye, and they're like, ah, as they're falling out. <laughs> and it's so good. It's so good. That whole, that scene is also one of the animation standout scenes, by the way, is that picking them up, riding the little tram, going into the incinerator, that whole section is just absolutely stunningly animated. Yeah, I would agree. Well, here's our chance to talk about the one moment in the movie that stood out to us, got us in the feels. Uh, it's our connecting point if you're not familiar with that. And if you are familiar with it, well, it's still our connecting point. So here we go. Aaron, what was uh, your CP for this episode? Well, it's our CP. So we'll just kind of throw this out there together. So you wrote it down in our notes as Atari giving a treat to Chief. And I actually kind of was confused at first. And I was like, is that really, do we really have the same CP? But I think that it's such an all-encompassing scene, and you wrote down the ending of it, and that's true, and kind of the gist of the emotional <laughs> moment that it, yeah. it ends his on or whatever. But the whole thing about this scene is a lot of what hit differently for me, being a now lengthy one-week dog owner, it's Chief wrestling with this idea that he is independent and he is not going to be owned. He is not going to do what this kid tells him to do. He's going to do what he wants to do. And he says that straight up and Atari, it starts by that beautiful moment or hilarious moment, I guess, where Atari is again, facially animated, doesn't talk because we can't know what he's saying but he tells us with his animated actions and his facial expressions, he wants to ride that slide. And Chief's like, nope, you're not tall enough. <laughs> he gives him a realistic answer. And I think that's hilarious. And then Atari like takes a step over, like he's going to do it. And Chief's like, don't. And Atari defies him. And he's like, I am not your pet. I don't care about you. I will not wait for you. I bite. Good luck. And this is, I've mentioned it many times, but I love this whole I bite through line. This time when he says, I bite, he's like, don't you know I bite? Like, I'm I'm telling, 
I'm reinforming or I'm reassuring myself at this moment that like this is who I am. I'm an angry dog. I will do this. When we very much as an audience already can tell that the dog's true nature, that's not the dog, you know. And when Atari goes to pick up the stick and he's like, don't ask me to fetch that stick. <laughs> I'm telling you, I don't fetch. Again, he's like, I'm going to defy you. I'm not going to do this thing. And he throws it. And because he's a dog <laughs> and all dogs do, right? He's going to go get it. Like, I'm trying to teach my dog to fetch right now, Patrick. And he, I think, is starting to understand the word fetch corresponds to me throwing the ball or whatever. But he'll go get it. It's the dropping it back off part to me that he's not quite there. But there's, like, something in the dog that is nature that says, I'm going to go get that. And so Chief shows us that. He's like, whoop. You know, I, I, I'm going to go do, because I'm not, I'm not doing this because you commanded me to. I'm doing it because I feel sorry for you. <laughs> and I think that's hilarious, right? He's like, try the whole scene. He's trying to convince himself that he is the one in charge and he doesn't want to do the thing the boy wants him to do, but only because he's doing it out of defiance and he doesn't want to be like other dogs. Not because he doesn't like the feelings that it provides for him or creates in him. And so as it goes on, you know, he gives Chief a bath and we see him look differently. And then this moment comes where he takes this dog, Biscuito, which is my favorite. Thing. I'm sorry. I just love adding O to the end of Jack. It's probably really culturally insensitive, to be honest, but it's funny. So when we say Petto and Gardago and Biscuito, I, I, I think it's funny. So I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings. But it's funny. And that's what he says. And he pulls it out and he breaks it in half. And Chief knows what this means. Like, so he's done all of these things. He's played with him. He's shown him affection. He's cleaned him. He's now taking this piece of food that is supposed to be special it's supposed to be saved for a very special dog and he's offering part of that meal to chief like it is as if to me like this he chief says it. he says this is my new favorite food thank you and you know what it has nothing to do with the taste of the food that's the point the point is it goes back to all those meals that the dogs were talking about their birthday meals it goes back to the moments that made them feel special with their owner. Oh God, I'm gonna get teary. Stop it. Um, and, and that is the bonds that we have with the pets. And that's why this is that moment that captures it so beautifully because for chief, this is it. This is the one he wants. Like, he cannot fight it anymore. He understands this human is good. This human loves him, is caring. And it's, he finally understands like why, would I fight this? You know, I've, I've had this lifelong conflict between his impulses toward obedience, but also wanting to be disobedient. And it is amazing. And he, we wrap that scene up, Patrick. I know I've gone through this whole thing, so I'm sorry for taking all your thoughts. I hope you, <laughs> I hope you have something to say, but like he, we end up with him going with Atari and, you know, Atari has been struggling cause he's hurt and he, this is one of my favorite single moments. They're walking up some stairs. Chief's going along ahead 
as a dog would do to make sure the way is safe and to be in front. And Atari's coming up slowly and he turns and he walks back and he, animation's beautiful. He hunches down and puts his back underneath the hand of Atari so that he can prop him up and give him balance and continues to walk with him from there, protecting him, helping him. And then he makes a promise and says, I will help you find spots if he's alive, no matter what. Knowing full well that it's another dog that this guy is in love with, or that this, this dog is so, or this, this dog, this human is so fond of because of what he has shown to chief. Like he wants to return that. And that bond has, the bond has been made. Like this is it. This is human and dog ownership relationship, I guess. 101 condensed into a moment in this movie. This is what it is. This is how the bond happens and why man's best friend becomes a dog for me. So I love it. <laughs> Obviously, it had to be my connecting. I'm sorry. Please. Don't apologize. Sure. No, I, I co-sign all that. I think the one thing I would add is there is an accent piece to that in that entire sequence. And it's when it's before he washes. Uh, it's before he washes Chief. He gives him a hug. And I need to tell you, my dog Hope, for whatever reason, because she's just a different dog than Savvy, she will not let me hug her like I would a human being. Like I, I, She won't let me put my head behind her neck. Like She has to see my face. Like if I try to hug her like this, I'm, I'm pointing to my screen because I have this, this scene pulled up. But if I try to hug her, she pulls away because she doesn't feel safe. Like she wants to make sure that, you know, she's got some control there. And I understand that. I don't take it as a sign that she doesn't love me by any means, but that's what makes this moment in the movie so significant. It's the moment where Atari gives chief a hug and we see this facial expression that you're going to see in a lot of dogs where they kind of cut their eyes at something else. They'll cut their eyes away and you interpret it in a number of different ways. You can interpret it like, what is this kid doing to, I don't know how to respond to this. But the fact that Chief isn't pulling away, he's embracing this moment as being like, wow, I'm genuinely loved. And it comes shortly, I think, after, I can't remember where it comes in the sequence around the treat, but there are those different pockets of moments where as he fights that urge to want to stay single, independent, whatever you want to call it, he gets these reinforcements that someone loves him. Someone cares for him in a way. I love the fact that he's cared for before he's washed, that he's hugged before he's washed, because there's a symbolic gesture there that, oh, who he actually is underneath is who Atari has kind of fallen in love with, not this black matted fur that is an exterior. And Beyond that, just from a technical standpoint, I love the facial expression because it's absolutely what a dog looks like. It's absolutely the facial expression that a dog makes, and it says all those things. And it also makes me jealous that I can't do that with one of my dogs because she just freaks out. Hopefully, as she gets older, she's turning. She just turned two, so hopefully she's moving into a phase where if she's sitting down, I can just kneel down and give her a hug. I'm going to try it before I go to bed tonight, and hopefully we'll have a breakthrough. But if we don't, that's okay. Tomorrow's a new day. <laughs> so yes, 
uh, my convicting point is the same as yours. That whole thing is just amazing. All right. Well, that is going to do it for this episode of Feelin' Film. Next week, we're going to be finishing up our mainline episodes, celebrating the beloved canine with our coverage of Bolt, as well as the short film Feast. And later this week, we'll be bringing you some spoiler-free coverage of the upcoming films Run, as well as the documentary Leap of Faith. Until then, enjoy your week, everybody. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, and we will talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.